brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. It's the end of the world as we know it, people, but I feel fine. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and as we enter an era of uncertainty like we've never seen, it's important to know how we got here. We've watched way too many connected corporations grow to an uncontrollable size and get a slap on the wrist if we're lucky for all the scandals that litter their history. We've let politicians and Hollywood puppets wag the finger at us over climate change when the true perpetrators of the pollution that's trashed the planet are filling out the Fortune 500. We have said nothing about the Ponzi scheme that is our 401k retirement plans, turning a blind eye to investments in the very companies that are killing us and any hope of a healthy, independent local marketplace as long as we can retire in style. The education indoctrination system has slowly sucked out any semblance of critical thinking as our measurable scores in every category have slipped further and further from the rest of the world. And we watched 9-11 happen with no consequence for those truly responsible, and hellfire rained down on anyone in the proximity of the unfortunate scapegoat. Looking back, there are many places where we could pick out things that went wrong, but it's hard to imagine the nefarious few could have gotten to 2020 without many of the things that poured out of 9-11 and the Patriot Act. And today's returning guest, Charlie Robinson, would surely agree, as he's just completed a dense and detailed new book with co-author Jeff Berwick, entitled The Controlled Demolition of the American Empire from the Founding of the Federal Reserve to 9-11 to the Coronavirus Panic. He was here once before talking about his book, The Octopus of Global Control, and he now hosts the Macro Aggressions Podcast, one of the best in the business. It's definitely a pleasure to have him back, the cephalopod scribe, the octopus author, my friend and yours, Charlie the Conspiracy Roadmapper Robinson. Welcome back, man. Thanks, Craig. Best, still the best intro in the business. Probably <laughs> always will be. Definitely a pleasure to be back. And you're one of my favorite people to get weird with. So let's go. Yes. Yes. Thank you, man. And I am psyched to have you here again. Your first book was pretty all encompassing when it comes to how each sector of society is thoroughly captured by the oily appendages of the big octopus. And this one as well breaks down the path that led us to where we are. The Controlled Demolition of the American Empire, another great title. Talk to us about how this new book is different and why 
controlled demolition is such a good analogy for what's happening to America. So I, I was doing Jeff Berwick's podcast, The Anarchist, back in the summer of 2018. We got done recording it and we were talking off air. And he said something along the lines of, you know, it's all coming down. And I was like, elaborate, go on. And he's like, you know, the financial system's a house of cards. You know, the trust in government is cratering. It's an unsustainable sort of situation. And it feels like it's all ready to come down. And we went further and just started talking about a variety of things. But at the end, he said, we should work on something together. We should write a book together. And I said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let me let me go give it a thought and see where we could go with this. And that line, it's all coming down, sort of stuck with me. Because when I think of it all coming down, I think of it coming down like a building, like a controlled demolition of a building and specifically like building seven, you know? So in my head, I'm thinking, you know, if we made the comparisons between the way you take down an actual building, things like pre-weakening it, identifying support columns, rigging the detonators, ringing the alarm bells, pushing down the plunger, all these things that you would do on an actual building, we can make the comparisons to the way you would take down the American empire. And of course, the first chapter is built on a rotten foundation. And Jeff and I sort of went in to explore how, well, it's sort of a history of empires too, which is they follow a very predictable life cycle. And by all accounts, and it is completely undeniable that we are at the final stage of our empire. And when you look at empires that came before us, like as an example, the Roman Empire, as things spiraled out of control there, they expanded their military to a size and to scope that they could not maintain. They debased their own currency. They would take their coins and they would clip little pie slice shapes out of the edges of all their coins and collect all those pieces together, melt them down and make them into a new coin. So what the Federal Reserve has been doing for the last hundred years of debasing our currency, they learned from the Romans, you know, so it's not a trick that they invented. So then, of course, the bread and circuses trying to distract the populations. And what you wind up finding is that with all of these empires, the people that were in it, the people that were the citizens of it, were surprisingly the last to know that it was all coming down because they're propagandized by that empire. They're told that everything is great and that everything's safe and fine and we're protecting you from external enemies and we just need more money. And here's the, the Roman Colosseum. Go watch these gladiators. Don't focus on the fact that we're screwing everything up. So we see some of these similarities and you take it and look at it in context of where we are in America. And I, I take no pleasure in this assessment. I'm an American, lived in America my whole life. I've been lucky enough to travel all over the world. But when you bring in someone like Jeff Berwick, who is a Canadian, who has lived in Mexico for the last decade, he's an anarchist, puts on the largest anarchy convention in the, in the world, Anarchapulco, which happens every February in Acapulco, Mexico, and he owns a multi-million dollar venture, the Dollar Vigilante. You know, that's a guy that sees the world differently. When people give him a hard time and they say, well, you like anarchy so much, Jeff, why don't you go to Somalia? What does he do? He goes to Somalia with Luke Radowski and they say, well, let's go take the cameras and see what's going on. Oh, you talk about hyperinflation, but you've never lived through it. You want to talk about hyperinflation? Go to Venezuela. So he goes to Venezuela. Oh, you want to talk about Epstein? You don't know anything about Epstein. So they raid his island. You know, so this is the type of lunatic that I'm writing a book with. <laughs> you know, he's, he sees the world so differently than everybody else. And I love that. And so when we, we put our heads together in this, well, you know, initially we felt like we should write a book. And as we were writing it, in my mind, it sort of shifted to, 
I feel like we almost have an obligation to write this book, to finish this book, because if we can see where things are headed and we've found the evidence of it, and there's 254 footnotes in the book, so we tried to document it as best we could. If we see all this and we don't tell the world or sound the alarm bells about it, then that's kind of bad karma on us. So yes, we wanted to get the book out. I wanted it out sooner. It wound up coming out the Friday before the elections and becoming a number one bestseller on election day, which is so phenomenal and ironic and perfect because we are just lining up the government and kicking it square in the nuts. And for that to happen on election day is perfect because if you read this book, I promise you, you'll never vote an election ever again. So, so the irony was not lost on us. And then the response to it has been beyond anything I could have expected. And I credit that to Jeff and Jeff's passionate fans and his dollar vigilante, anarchist, anarchopoco people that I'm slowly getting to know. They've just been wonderful. I think they understand that there's a problem. I think everybody understands there's some sort of problem. But I think they appreciate the way that we laid this book out in sort of a real easy to read fashion. You don't have to be a black belt level conspiracy person to read and understand. You know, we try to make it as appealing to everybody as possible. But I think it gets people thinking about where we're headed as a nation. And it's both terrifying and also I think some people are seeing it as an opportunity because I think, you know, when they talk about what we've been hearing lately, this great reset and things like that, they talk about how everything is broken and we need to move to this new paradigm. And it's like, well, you know, I think a lot of people would agree that everything is broken. Not necessarily that we want to move to their paradigm, but we do need to make some changes here. So I think that part of this book has really resonated with people because they can see the logic in it. They can read it. And they're also simultaneously going to find out things that they had never even heard of. And so we, it's been a thrill. And I've been really grateful that Jeff and I were able to get this thing out. Yes, man, that is a great intro. And I definitely learned a lot because there are so many details. There's bullet pointed lists. When you talk about pollution versus climate change, you don't just say that vaguely, like you then list the worst 20 elements of pollution and to see them all stacked up like that in all these different categories, it's really shocking, but it makes for a great resource that a lot of us should have on our shelves. And I've heard you talk about that backstory that you were working on this book for a couple of years and it almost came out in March. And that is just crazy because it would be like putting out a book on false flags in August of 2001. Yes. So glad you were able to revise it because <laughs> it'd be just outdated without the whole 2020 saga that we've had because it is the wildest in our lifetimes. Yeah. And so here I am all bummed out in February that we didn't get it out in time for Narcopulco. And then March rolls around and we both said, whoa, okay, let's pump the brakes. Let's see how this plays out. And after about the end of August, I told Jeff, I said, I've seen enough. How about you? He says, yeah, I've seen enough. Let's finish it up. Let's put the coronavirus situation in there and then sort of thread it through the whole book. And what's funny is that it wound up being two and a half years from when we started it to when it came out. You're right. It would be like writing a book on false flags in August of 2001. It would be incomplete. And so that timing worked out perfect. We're really glad that we we were able to do that. The corona situation, of course, is a gigantic curveball. Now, we knew something would trigger this. My personal projection was that it was going to be Deutsche Bank. I really thought Deutsche Bank being this zombie bank that's totally propped up by governments and other banks 
that that would be the trigger that would set us all off and it would have a cascading effect and take everything down. I still think Deutsche Bank is a disaster waiting to happen. But to be fair and to be totally honest, we didn't see the virus angle. I mean, we knew some we knew it would be a giant lie. We knew there would be fraud baked into whatever the trigger event was. But the virus situation, they got us on that one. We didn't predict that one. But luckily, we didn't have to put the book out back in February. We were able to take a look at everything and incorporate the plans of the World Economic Forum in this. And you mentioned the bullet points in the book. What's funny is that in my Octopus of Global Control book, a lot of people bought that and I got a lot of feedback from the book and and people say, oh, this is great. Open my eyes up to a lot of these things, which I'm happy to do. And that was the intent of the book. But the one compliment that I kept getting on the book in the Octopus book was, thank you for putting a lot of bullet points in it. It was easier to read. So I was like, okay, I mean, I'll get, if that's the number one compliment I get from the book, I guess I'll take it. But when it came to the second one, I was like, Jeff, we're going to incorporate a lot of bullet points because my research has shown that the people like the bullet points. So we're going to put those in because it's easier to read. It's not to say the whole book is written in bullet points, just to be clear, but where applicable, do it that way so that the people can sort of get through the information as quickly as possible. (laughs) Well, I I think that is a great part of the book, and maybe I'm a victim of it too, but we've been dumbed down so severely that maybe we just needed a nice little digestible bullet points. Yep. (laughs) Even though you you got 400 pages of unfortunate conspiracy goodness and all those sources, it it is a a hefty one, man. I'm, I'm impressed. And anyone who's been in the conspiracy game for a while knows that this theme of we're at the end has been a part of it since like before I was born in some grim way, maybe it's natural to want to be around for the end. I mean, who wants to leave in the middle of the movie? Right. Right. But when you say the end of the American empire, what does that really mean to you? Because you're not saying it's the end of America itself, right? Right. It's not to say that it's the end of America. We look at it kind of like this. 30 years ago, we had the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union was dragged into an unwinnable 10-year war in Afghanistan. We've doubled that, of course. They had their currency manipulated by outside forces. That's happening to us. There was no trust in Soviet media. You have, of course, Pravda, and people knew that that was straight propaganda coming from the state. We're experiencing the same thing. Of course, we even have the smith Modernization Act of 2012, which legalized propaganda inside the United States to be used on Americans. So we quite literally have Pravda in our country. And then, of course, there was the corrupt politicians towards the tail end of the Soviet run where they were looting the place with their oligarch buddies. They were stealing everything that wasn't nailed down. They were outsourcing things to their oligarchs. They knew the end was near. And so when you take a look at the Soviet Union falling apart in 91, you go, The comparisons and similarities are astounding between where we are. Now, much like the Soviet Union broke apart, they had to prioritize Mother Russia. So they left go their control of Latvia and Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia and all these satellite nations that they had part of this union. It just became Russia and a bunch of states had their autonomy. So we see this sort of similarity for the American empire, where it's not so much that America itself ceases to exist, but that the concept of the empire goes away. Our thousand military bases all around the globe, our use of the petrodollar and the US dollar is the world's reserve currency, our use of sanctions, the way that we use the carrot and stick because of our very strong 
economic force, our use of the SWIFT banking system where everything sort of funnels through that where we can say, well, if you're Iran or Venezuela or Cuba and you're not playing ball with us, we just turn your access off to that. You know, all of these dirty tricks that we've been using because of the arrangement that we have, those sorts of things will go away. And America won't be the superpower that it once was because the plan requires that there no longer be superpowers standing in the way. These maniacs that want to run this entire world under a one world government, there's certain things that need to happen in advance of that. The first thing is there cannot be superpowers. So the Soviet Union was taken out three decades ago and the American empire has been slated for destruction as well. And after you live through 2020 and beyond, which, you know, I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but I mean, I don't see things just magically getting better once the calendar changes. The idea of of America being brought down becomes not just this sort of idea that we have talked about, you know, since, like you said, since before we were born, that the end is near and things like that. But it becomes real tangible. It becomes a real possibility. People actually see it. It's not as big of a leap to make after what we've experienced. So, you know, it's an interesting time. It's like the Chinese saying the character for danger is the same character as opportunity. So we've got a little danger. We've got a little opportunity. It's not to say, you know, I don't want to bum everybody out and say, well, it's all over. But the current paradigm that we've been living in is definitely over. It's changing. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that comes in the wake of it is going to be horrible. Now, the globalist people would like for it to be horrible. But there's still a chance here. We still have humanity. You know, we still have the possibility. So it's important for people to realize that when we were writing this book, you know, on the one hand, we're not trying to scare people necessarily. And we're not trying to scare people for no good reason. We're trying to alert people to what's actually coming and happening. Now, if that is scary, then process that and deal with it accordingly. But it's not to say that the end of the American empire is is the end of America. And frankly, let's be honest, some of the components of the American empire need to go away. You know, our behavior around the globe has been reprehensible. We had 9-11. And after that, regardless of the backstory of 9-11, but we had 9-11 and we had the sympathy of the world for a time. And America could have used that to pivot and do amazing things you know, and use that moment to kind of bring the world together. That did not happen. We use that as the pretext to go invade Afghanistan, which literally had nothing to do with 9-11. And then we used the same, then we drummed up the fake weapons of mass destruction for Iraq. And then we went to Libya. Then we went to Somalia and we started working on Syria and all of these things. And so it's like the American empire had this catastrophic incident called 9-11. And then took that and used that as the opportunity to be the biggest monster on the planet and start to do these things in the name of freedom, in the name of fighting terror by creating more terror. And so, you know, I mean, I think if people are being honest, they look at the American empire and they say, well, look, I wouldn't be so sad if it went away, you know, and I personally wouldn't be so sad if it went away either, because we've got much like a, an alcoholic, right? Who is, is coming to turn. The first step is acknowledging that we have a problem. And a lot of people in America and a lot of people in the media spend their times trying to convince others that everything is fine, but everything is not fine. And it's okay to admit that everything is not fine. It's the first step in changing things. It's the first step in, in making things different. And so when we talk about the end of the American empire, there's something good in that as well. It will be painful, 
transitions and change is always painful, especially if you let the globalist people be in charge of the transition. It will not go our way. But I think a lot of people would agree that the current situation that we're living in is unsustainable. Our behavior around the globe, the thousand military bases, the constant lies in the media and the lies from the government. Boy, if we had a mass awakening and realized that that needed to change and the price for that to change was we have to get rid of this American empire, I think a lot of people would be fine with that. Yeah, I agree. And it's definitely a situation of mixed feelings because nobody I know in America wants to feel as if they're living high on the hog at the expense of others around the globe, even though we know that to be partially true, though a lot of it's hidden, which makes it easy to ignore. But then you start thinking... To what degree would my life have to change if we dismantled all the systems that I hate but also rely on or am addicted to? And it gets a bit hairy because even if something sucks, like a job, we tend to stick with what we know because something radically unknown is even more intimidating. And the alcoholic analogy is a good one. Or it's like having an abusive father where you think, sure, he would drink and take the belt out or he slapped mom around a little bit here and there. But you still can't help but be sad at his funeral because a bad dad is still a dad. And maybe the same thing is true for country. For sure. And I think that the relationship that we have with our government is that of an abusive relationship. (laughs) I mean, if your girlfriend treated you or your wife treated you the way that your government did, you'd get a restraining order against her. You know what I mean? It's insane. But because it's the only system that most of us have lived under it's normalized. And we think and we don't know how else it would work if it doesn't work this way. So there's fear baked into that, of course, because change can be scary. But and that's understandable. That's probably a something hardwired into us. But I think that a lot of times after you've had a big transformation in your life, a transitional period, you look back on it and go, oh, that was really good for me. It it, it put me on a different path. It was a little scary early on, but I'm glad I'm here and, and I see things differently now. So I fear the fact that with change like this comes, you know, massive disruption and a lot of people aren't prepared. And it kind of reminds me of the Darwin thing. And people always say, well, Darwin's theory is only the strong survive. And in actuality, what he was saying was only those that are able to adapt will survive. So this adaptation that Americans, Americans in particular, will have to embark on, it's a big process. And it's a lot of people are like, man, I don't have time for this. I I don't want to have to learn to live in a new paradigm. I just got used to this one and I've got kids in school and I have to go to my job because I'm lucky enough to still have one and everything. So we're talking about this in you know, we're writing about this in 2019. Now, if I was trying to tell people about this empire's coming down in 2019, people would be like, yeah, well, I get it. I mean, it's probably going to happen, but mm, I don't know. But when you're trying to tell people about it towards the tail end of 2020 and the book comes out and you're like, it's all coming down. They're like, oh yeah. Oh, I know now. (laughs) Like we see it. So it's about, it's all about timing. And then what are we going to do? Are we going to we're going to passively sort of take this new paradigm that's being rolled out for us through the maniacs of the, the World Economic Forum. I'm not really open to that. I'm not interested in that. But it's fascinating because we acknowledge that things are going to change. We know deep down things need to change, but it's that what are they going to change to? And that's kind of the most important part. And who's going to lead this change? If it's led by 
thinkers and people that are being honest about the role of government and the role of media and the role of the military and big pharma. You know, if somebody that says we've been doing it wrong, I think we envision this change to be, you know, something without the influence of the mainstream media. Okay, I'm in, <laughs> on board with that for sure. But if it's we're going to leave this current paradigm for something new and it's going to be called the Great Reset, well, then you can count me out on that. I'm not interested. Right, right. And that is a great point because the end of the American empire does not mean the end of the American elite or the true puppet masters because empires rise and fall. But it does seem like the capstone cabal tends to migrate from husk to husk, yeah. so to speak. At least their ideas do. For sure. Yeah. Where we go with this is interesting because the World Economic Forum has rolled out this concept of the Great Reset. And when you hear the sales pitch, you know, it's like any good lie. There's a fair amount of truth in it. They say, well, we've got these massive inefficiencies and people living in situations that are untenable and, and there's poverty and there's homelessness and there's all these things and, and we can fix that. And they say, well, the capitalist system that's set up is creating these massive inequalities where you've got super wealthy people and dirt poor other people. And we need to fix that. And you're going, yes, yes, yes. And then they say, and the solution is you'll own nothing in 2030 and you'll never be happier. And you're like, oh, hang on. Nope. <laughs> Not interested in that. <laughs> you, you had right. me up until you started saying, I will own nothing and I'll be happy about it. You know? And so I think it's one of these things where don't fall for the glossy marketing campaign because look, I wasn't around when the Soviet Union pitched communism, but I'm sure they pitched it as unicorns and rainbows and blue sky and plenty of food for everybody. And of course, we saw what happened. We get gray Soviet era buildings that all look super depressing. We've got babushkas and bread lines and things like that. We have the videos of people going to shop in Moscow in the 80s and the stores are totally empty of food. And so just I hope people realize that the sales pitch you're getting is going to look very different from reality. Right. That's true, too. And Agenda 2030 gets mentioned a lot, but it doesn't get broken down all that often. And in the book, you list their 17 stated goals, which are, of course, rose-colored. But then you write about what's behind those goals. And you paint a great picture, I mean, not, you know, so, so to speak, of what the world looks like in 2030 if they achieve their full plan. Talk to us about that a little bit. What do you see 2030 looking like for the average middle-class American if they were to get their way? Yeah, we heard we won't own anything. Like That's something people talk about a lot, but dive deeper into that. Yeah. Well, I think the, the most alarming component of this is something that is quite literally straight out of a Black Mirror episode. But of course, it's true. The reality of it is happening now. And that is the social credit system. This is a component of Agenda 2030 that is part of it. Now, it used to be Agenda 21. This is the plan for the 21st century. They kind of moved the goalposts back about 30 years and said, we're going to call it Agenda 2030. And it is self-driving cars and the Internet of Things and universal basic income and smart cities. Everybody is tied into this massive network. And this network is mostly run by artificial intelligence and they're compiling data on you and feeding that into someplace. And part of where they want it to go is into a social credit system. Now, this is all theoretical for us in the United States. We think of it as this may happen in the future. But in Shenzhen, China, it's actually happening right now. 
this is already in operation. They have hundreds of millions of not just closed circuit TV cameras, but facial recognition cameras that are throughout all of China, but specifically in Shenzhen. And what they're doing is they're rolling out this system where if a guy walks out of his house in China, in Shenzhen, he goes to get to the bus stop, gets on the bus, lights up a cigarette on the bus, minding his own business, smoking on the bus, which he's not supposed to do. Facial recognition cameras pick up this guy immediately, run him through the database, match him to who he is, ping his cell phone by the time he gets off of this bus that says, you have been found in violation of smoking on a bus. You've been fined the equivalent of, I don't know, $50. That money is deducted out of their account, which is sort of like a PayPal account, like a Weibo account. And by the time that guy gets off the bus, he's been found guilty. He's been fined. That money's been deducted out of his account and his social credit score goes down. Now, what the social credit score does is it's a measure of who you are as a person, how compliant you are, how participatory you are in all sorts of government-related events and things like that. If you have a high score, that guy wants to go rent a car or rent a bicycle somewhere, he's going to get a discount on it because his score is very high. If your score gets too low, you're not even allowed to get on the high-speed train or airlines. You're literally locked out of the system. Now, that is happening right now. And it's blocked. I think the number I saw was something like 70,000 different people have been trying to get on airplanes and they're not allowed to because their score is too low. So just take that concept and export that to the United States, which of course is where it's going. And think about the ramifications of that in conjunction with Agenda 2030, where you're living in these smart cities, where the internet of things, your toaster's talking to your fridge and your fridge is reporting to your healthcare provider that this guy's bought too many Cokes in here. There's too many, you know, this guy's got birthday cake in the fridge. He's got wine. He's got all kinds of bad stuff. We're going to raise your healthcare premiums because your fridge ratted you out to your healthcare provider. Now, that sounds totally insane right now for us, but it's coming and it's part of this and it's being normalized and we're sort of getting ourselves ready for this. And we have social media, of course, and Guys like us have had our struggles with social media, so no doubt our social credit score would be rather low. But then they've created a new component of it, which is so devious that you have to stand in appreciation of how evil these people are. But in this same scenario about the guy smoking on the bus, now all of the guys that that guy reaches out to, all his friends in his circle of friends that he calls, emails, or texts after that, their scores go down now too because of him, right. because of their association with this low score having smoker guy. So now you start to work on the social pressure of this to conform. And once again, when you're just hearing about this, it sounds theoretical. But now when we incorporate it into our, our lives and look at it currently for what we've been going through, think about it with the way the mask situation works. You're somebody that's not wearing a mask because you don't want to wear a mask and screw them and I'm going to go to the grocery store without it. When you walk into that grocery store, you're on camera and everywhere you go, you're on camera. So now they match that to your facial recognition, theoretically, and your score goes down because you're not wearing a mask. And we see how the social shaming has been working because the Karens of the world are out there telling everybody to put their masks on and we're seeing all the videos of this. So it's not that far of a reach for people to figure out how this is going to look moving forward. 
And of course, the whole pretext of this is that it's for the betterment of society. You know, it's this social contract that we all didn't sign, but are supposed to pretend like we did that I have to do what's best for society at the expense of myself. I have to look out for the greater good. And when they roll something out like this with a social credit score and tie it into to the Internet of Things and everything that comes with Agenda 2030, even the most casual observer gets the creeps from this because they see where this is going. They see where the ramifications of this are. I mean, it's like you understand that there will be outright censorship because of things like this, but then there'll be the unquantifiable self-censorship that nobody can ever quite measure. But the fact that you don't say what you're thinking on an email because you know that it will submarine not just your social credit score, but your friend's score as well, that might be the most devious component of it all. Right. It's true. And you can already see the seeds of it with all this snitching that's going on. It's so sad how easy that was to turn communities in on each other with all this tattletaling on who's fighting back or not even fighting back, but just trying to quietly keep their business running despite Gavin Newsom's lockdown order. And I am happy to say that a San Diego judge did overturn that yesterday and said, no, actually, restaurants can be open. Strip clubs can be open. Yep. And now you got churches calling themselves strip clubs so they can skate by. Probably not paying taxes like strip clubs. And I'm sure this will all get kicked up the ladder and who knows how long it will last. But it is good to see something besides just feeble compliance. You know, I spend a lot of time on these San Diego subreddits and... They're all little snitches about small businesses trying to do their thing. And they talk about making lists so that they know who not to support even when this is all over. And it's like, what are you even talking about? You are killing your own community. Right. Clearly, these people have never held their own fate in their hands and had it ripped away like this. It's real easy to sit at home on unemployment or with enough money in the bank that you can sit around and judge other people who don't have that luxury. Uh, it's frustrating, man. But I did want to read this part from your book where you paint a picture much like the outline that you just gave us, but it hits a few different notes too, and it's in a nice, tight little package. But you write, The goal is to create two different groups of humans like the feudal society of serfs and kings. The lower class of useless eaters gets fed the nutriently deficient GMO food, and they can chase it down with fluoride-laden polluted water the same water that will be strictly rationed due to water shortages. They will be forced to live in 300-square-foot micro-apartments inside high-density cities in order to combat global warming, and their carbon footprint will be monitored and taxed through the smart grid while imposing forced austerity on the masses. Due to the tight living quarters, vaccination will be mandatory for herd immunity, and all children will need to be fully immunized with all 100-plus shots before they are allowed to attend the government schools teaching Common Core. All cash will be outlawed, and instead everything will be moved into digital currency in the form of a microchip that everyone will have implanted under the skin to conduct all financial transactions, courtesy of the World Bank. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, that is a really... Great summary of their version for our future, but I do try to not get too freaked out about this stuff and remind people that the plan is just the plan. Sometimes they only get half of what they want, sometimes 80%, maybe 20%, we don't know. 
but it's certainly not set in stone. And it's important to see the road they're trying to pave, but also not get caught up in this mindset that it's all already over, you know? Yeah, that's really a good point. There's still time left in this. And let's remember that we are the ants. They are the grasshoppers. We outnumber them a million to one as the movie goes. So we do have this power. We're propagandized to make us feel that we don't. And part of that is that they keep us divided and fighting with each other. But you're right. This is their plan. It's their business plan, let's just say. Now, it doesn't mean that everything that they have planned is going to roll out. But you can see where it's going and you can see that they do put their presentations out there for people to see. It's hysterical to me when people you know, call you a conspiracy theorist for something like this when it's like, no, no, we're conspiracy analysts. We're not theorizing about this stuff. This is in their writings. This is in the presentations that they give. This is at the World Economic Forum at Davos. When they talk about these things openly, it's in their writings in the Club of Rome when their books, The Limits to Growth, where they wrote about that they were going to invent the concept of global warming back in 1971 and use it as the pretext to push everybody into a one world government with a carbon tax. It's not me speculating about that. It's me analyzing their work because they write about it because it's important to them. They are as enthusiastic about this as we are about stopping it. But the difference is they have control over the media. They have access to governments, they have almost unlimited money, and they take a very long-term approach. And yet the rest of us, we're still arguing about whether or not this plan is even a real thing. You know, So we're at a severe disadvantage in that sense, in the fact that they know how to work us. You know, They know how to get us fighting and divided and working against each other, and therefore expending all of our energy so that we can't focus on the real problem, which is, of course, them. But things are changing. And I feel very good about one thing. It's not the greatest component of this, but these people tend to overplay their hand. And whether that be some form of rushing a vaccine to market a little too quickly or, you know, getting caught fake injecting people on TV and things like that, you know, there's a certain segment of the population that is going to see those sorts of things and wake up. They're going to say, wait a second, what's going on here? So we always have to keep in mind that, yes, it is their plan. And yes, they are very good and they're very patient at putting their plan into place. But sometimes they're not very creative. They run the same plays over and over again. And as human beings, we're very good at pattern recognition. So we see the same sorts. If we see a pattern forming, we're like, hang on a second, it just kind of jumps out at us. And when you see the same types of false flags over and over again, you go, hang on a second. I know this script. I've seen something similar to this before. And so there is something good in this in that they could overplay their hand with the Corona situation. I mean, I don't think that there were the legit body count that they hoped for or thought there would be. And so it's kind of, you know, I had David Icke on my show two weeks ago and I was talking to him about that. I said, David, I wasn't alive for the Black Plague, but I get the feeling that it didn't need a public relations department, that it was self-evident that there was a plague sweeping the nation. But yet here right now, it seems like we're watching a gigantic marketing campaign for a virus. It's been normalized into commercials as a way to kind of get you feeling about every 10 minutes on the radio, someone's saying, hey, make sure you wear your mask, make sure you social distance. You know, these are the types of things that the people that are awake, paying attention to things, they go, uh... 
why are you selling this so hard? <laughs> if there's, if there's, and, and to be clear, I'm glad there's not bodies stacked up on the sidewalk everywhere. I'm very glad that that's not happening, but it's not happening. So is this going to be a thing? Is this going to backfire, Greg? Is this going to be the thing that wakes up? Is this going to be the new 9-11 in two senses, in the sense that it's a gigantic false flag, but also that it wakes up a new generation of people that go, hang on a second. The official story to this event doesn't make any sense. There's big problems with it. If this is a lie, what else is a lie? And I mean, 9-11 did it for me. So I wonder if after all is said and done, we get a couple years down the road from this, we look back on this and we have a whole new generation of people that go, yeah, I was pretty much asleep until the Corona situation. Then, you know, the TikTok videos of nurses dancing and the hospitals are overflowing, but nobody's actually there. The fact that nobody knows that many people, you know, nobody knows anybody that's died from it. I shouldn't, that's maybe I'm being a bit over the top with that statement, but I mean, it's not self-evident that there is a pandemic. It has to be marketed. And so maybe, and maybe this is wishful thinking on my part, but maybe it wakes people up. Maybe it backfires on them. And that would be tremendous if that happened, but it's going to require people to turn their televisions off, just turn off the mainstream media at the bare minimum, because what they're doing to us is they're trying to mind control us and get us into seeing this world in a much different way. But I always go back to the Bill Hicks quote, you know, everyone knows it. And I put it in my octopus book. You open the window, stick your head out and it's crickets. You know, it's nothing. Yes. We don't see it, yes. but go back into your house, turn on CNN and they would have you believe that the sky is falling. It's very true. It's very true. And I agree with what you're saying. I do uh, kind of recoil at that or I want to start issuing uh disclaimers at that whole thing about, you know, nobody's dying because yes, that's the pushback I get more than any. I get people writing me that say, I used to love your show, but my grandma died or my neighbor's mom died of COVID and you're irresponsible with the way you're having these conversations. And, you know, I'm not going to push back on someone who's grieving. I would just say, I'm sorry for your loss. But the reality is, what do you know about that person's illness. What do you really know about it? Probably nothing. And, you know, I've had people make the point that in a normal year, X amount of people die of pneumonia, X amount of people die from the flu. But even beyond that, people get sick and they have similar flu-like symptoms and they go to the hospital in their old age and they die and it's marked down as flu or pneumonia. Well, there's actually, I would say, at least dozens, if not hundreds of different little things that get us sick. And it's not like they're getting a flu test at the hospital or a pneumonia test at the hospital. They're like, this person's 90 and it looks like they died of pneumonia because we've seen these symptoms before. And that's true in a normal year. And this year, obviously, they're writing down COVID for a lot of other things. So, you know, I'm sorry that your 101-year-old great-grandma died. But when you say she died of COVID, I'm a little skeptical of that and what that really means. Yes, they wrote it down, but you know, and it's it's hard because I don't want to get into it with specific people that I care about who have deaths in the family because that isn't looking a good look for us at all. Right. But at the same time, what you're told and what you know are not necessarily the same thing. Yes, I think a lot of people are getting sick. People I trust have said I got this thing and it hit me in a way that no other illness has. Sure. They, they didn't go to the hospital. They didn't even talk to a doctor. 
and they got over it as they would the flu. So I don't know if there's something new out there. I've never said it is a hoax. I've never said that, you know, there's nothing making people sick. Everything's making people sick. We have so many goddamn toxins in our environment. We're eating right. nutriently de devoid food. That whole thing about, you know, feeding us the GMO food, that's already happening. The fluoridated water, that's already happening. Uh, maybe the electrical environment has changed. There's so many different things making people sick. I'm only saying that what's written on that paper might not be what killed them in the same way that flu and pneumonia is a catch-all term for a lot of things we haven't even identified in the in the world. So I don't know. That's Yeah, I'm with you too. There's a difference between dying from COVID and dying with it. Yes. And a lot of people have been, I'm not trying to say it's not a real thing either. And I'm also trying to say, yeah, I'm grateful that it's not as dangerous as they said it is. But there has been some overt fuckery going on with the numbers, with the way they classify the deaths. You know, even the article that came out, I don't know if it was written from the CDC or if they were quoting the CDC. Early on, it said like 169,000 deaths from coronavirus. And that's the headlines and everything. But if you read the article and you go three paragraphs down, it says, though 169,000 people died, only about 6% we can attribute to actually dying from coronavirus. The other 94% died with coronavirus and on average 2.6 other comorbidity conditions. So that's a huge difference. You know, we're talking about 6% of 169,000 mm -hmm. as opposed to 169,000. That's wordplay. That's how the media goes about trying to frame things to make things sound like a bigger deal than they are. If they had just said 6% of 169,000 people are dead, well, okay, so what are we talking about? 10,000 people? That's not a pandemic. I feel bad for all those 10,000 people and their families. You don't ever want to see this. I'm not trying to be cold hearted. I'm just saying that from a statistical standpoint, the numbers don't add up and people are recognizing that. And so now the number is 300,000. Well, is it 300,000 or is it 6% of 300,000? Because you can't say all of these people are dying. The CDC says they're all dying. And then when I bring up the fact that, yeah, yeah, but the CDC also said that it's actually only 6% of that number. You go, no, 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 don't listen to that. The CDC said over here, it's like, which facts are we going to argue with? Because I've got the same organization that you're quoting saying something vastly different, much like we've got Fauci and these other people saying, don't wear the mask. It doesn't work. It's all psychological in March, right? So they're saying one thing. Then we get three months later and it's like, oh, you've got to wear the mask. Greg, if you're not wearing the mask, are you trying to kill grandma? And you're like, what? You know, so this is, regardless of how people feel about this virus, this is a psychological operation. It is undeniable. It is following all of the patterns of a psychological operation. Introducing one set of information, telling everybody that that's the only source of information you can go to, and then halfway through switching it all up, giving people the exact opposite and saying, no, no, no. Don't listen to the first thing that we told you was true. Listen to the second thing. And if you don't wear the mask, now we're telling you you got to wear the mask. But if you don't wear the mask, if you're out, God forbid, playing with your kids at a park like that mother was, we're going to arrest you in front of your kids. We're going to close down your gym. We're going to drag you out of your tattoo shop. We're going to board it up. We're going to turn your water and power off Garcetti in LA. These are the types of things that lead to revolutions. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, you start pushing people around back and forth and you introduce, 
This is a psychological operation to keep the American people totally destabilized. And you know what winds up happening at the end of these operations? People throw their hands up in the air and they say, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just make the goddamn thing stop. Just make it all stop. Okay. What do you want? You want me to wear a mask? I'll wear a mask. Just make it stop. But the thing is, it's never going to stop. They'll put a line in the sand, then they'll cross it. Oh, you'll just wear the slow the curve for 15 days. That's true. Joe Biden says, wear the mask for the first hundred days of my presidency. Then it'll go away. You believe that guy? Nobody believes that guy. This is the slippery slope of trusting in psychopaths and not understanding the much bigger play that they have laid out for us. So it gets a lot of people frustrated. I understand the mask wearing people that are like, how dare you unmasked people come out here in the middle of a pandemic and get the rest of us sick. And now we have to restart this whole thing. Cause if you'd only stayed in your house and wore your mask, it would have worked. And you're like, if only that were true, you know, if only that were true, it'd be great. But let's have a conversation about the efficacy of masks. Okay. Let's talk about the fact that you've got people wearing bandanas around their face. Okay. And you're going to call me anti science? <laughs> Fuck out of here with that nonsense. You know what I mean? It's preposterous. And then when you point out the obvious absurdity of it all, what do you get for your troubles? You get called a conspiracy theorist that wants to kill grandma. It's so frustrating. And then you do what anyone does, which is, you just start to kind of back away and you go, okay, I'm not going to engage in this on Twitter. (laughs) This is not healthy. I'm not going to argue with some, some jerk on Twitter about this. This can't be, I'm not going to fight somebody in a produce section of the Vons because I'm not wearing my mask. I mean, everybody's high strung, but if you see this as a all encompassing psychological operation to train the people to turn on each other, to view each other as less than, to view each other as less than human, you know, to cover your, the lower half of your face is so, you know, social cues are misunderstood and the psychological impact of wearing a mask and what that actually means. And it's like a form of submission. And then there's the self-policing component. And, you know, Janet Napolitano used to say, if you see something, say something, right? So, so now everybody's like, I'm going to call the police because there's too many cars in my neighbor's driveway on Thanksgiving. Well, you know what? We went from we're all in it together to I'm going to rat out my neighbor for having too many people over at Thanksgiving. So right. it's been they've done a number on us. And until we collectively recognize that and realize we shouldn't be fighting with each other. There's a much bigger enemy here. We're going to be at a disadvantage. You know, as long as they've got us divided, they've always divided us. They've divided us into white and black and Republican and Democrat and rich and poor and all these things. Well, now they've divided us down into masks and non-masks, vaccines and non-vaccines, science and anti-science and all the things that come along with that. So they've done this as a tactic to keep us distracted and agitated and down on the reservation and not rising up collectively as the massive group of ants that we are and challenging the grasshoppers that are running this show. Because if we were to do that, this whole game ends. And that's the reality of this. And they know that. And those of us in this community, we understand this. But the vast majority of people don't realize the power that they have, that they actually have the power to change all of this. If we just put our differences aside just temporarily, (laughs) you can go back to hating someone later for their political affiliation. But Right now, the priority is all of us coming together and fighting against this tyrannical government, international globalist syndicate that is trying to take us to a place where 
we may never be able to escape from. You know, the digital prison that they're building around us is a form of society that will become normalized and we may not ever be able to escape from it. So it's so important for people to wake up right now. And part of that is my frustration is that I feel like I just want to grab people's heads and go, just look at this evidence. You know, you just want to <laughs> scream. And of course that doesn't work. And I, right. I've, <laughs> I've found out the hard way that that doesn't work. You know, Greg, like, you know, people that are super religious and they get very, they find this new religion and they go out it changes their life. It makes them feel so much better and they just want to tell you about it. You know, They just want to talk to you about it, not to annoy you, but because they know that it's changed their life. They feel so much better and they hope that that would do the same thing for you so they want to talk about it. That's kind of where I am right now with this. I feel this enthusiasm and obligation to talk about where we are and what's coming because I feel like if people can understand this, then it will change their perception of the world and they'll be able to position themselves to not fall into this trap. But I have to walk that line between being enthusiastic about it and being psychotic about it too. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah, so I've, had to, I've had to tame it a bit and realize and change my attitude and my expectations for the general public. And I've come to realize that I am going to present this information to those that are willing to accept it. And if you are unwilling or unable to process this information, no offense, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of my time on you. I'm going to prioritize and focus on the people that have the ability to wake up because as they say, it's hard to wake a person who's pretending to be asleep. Well said. And as we're watching the sun set on the American empire, I guess. Is there anything more to say about what we can do? We see these traps being laid and it feels like we're being pushed right into them. What's the point of seeing it if we're just going to walk right in? You know, I don't think it can be stopped in a major way at this point, but how can it be avoided? Especially, you know, outside of saying that whole thing about like, should we leave or should we stay? And assuming we've gotten as far as we can by having the conversation, what can a knowledgeable individual do to navigate the road from here to 2030? Well, we make the comparison to the way it must have been on December 26, 2004 in Banda Aceh, Indonesia, when those people woke up that morning and went down to the ocean and the water was gone. It just wasn't there. The tide level where it normally was, they couldn't even see it. It was The water was so far out there and they thought it was fascinating and it was interesting. And let's go take pictures and I'm going to walk. How far can I go? Let's walk out into the ocean where it used to be and see what we can see. This is so fascinating. And what is happening here? And for those that had the experience that recognized the signs, they knew what that meant. They knew that that meant that the water was going out because it was about to come back in in a giant tsunami and they headed for higher ground. And in fact, a lot of the animals headed for higher. They instinctively knew what that meant. And we feel like this is important for us to let people know what's coming so that they can head to higher ground. We have no illusions that people are going to be able to stop this. It would be nice. I'm not saying give up. But it requires all of us to sort of be awake to this and rise up collectively. And frankly, I just don't have that sort of faith in humanity at this current moment. I wish I did, but I don't. So in the absence of that, the next best thing 
is get yourself to higher ground, to the proverbial higher ground. Get your friends, your family, whoever will listen to you. Make the moves now to put yourself in a position where you don't get the wave doesn't come and wash you away. And that might be getting out of the city where you live, and that might be getting productive farmland and growing your own. It might mean different things to different people. But the awareness of it, that it's coming, getting yourself out of the banking system. We did a chapter in the book about how when you put your money into the bank, in America at least, when you put your money into the bank, it becomes the property of the banks. You become an unsecured creditor of the bank. Now, you may think, that's my money in my bank account. Go give me my money back. And they'll give it to you right now. And if you have a banking situation where, let's say, your local bank manager steals all the money out of the vault and bails out of town, you have the FDIC. They'll make you whole on that. But if you have a systemic banking collapse and you think that the FDIC is going to be there to bail you out because your account is insured up to $250,000, well, guess what? The FDIC only has about 2% of that money on hand. They can't cover all of that. And by the way, once you put your money into the bank account, it became the property of the banks and you're an unsecured creditor. So guess what? It's not your money. You're not even in first position on your money. The bank is. And the bondholders after that, you're like in third position. So something like that is important to know. If you want to plan accordingly, maybe get your money out of the bank now and do whatever you want. If you're talking about physical gold and physical silver or crypto or things like that, listen, I'm not licensed to give investment advice on that. I am licensed to give real estate advice because I've been a real estate broker for 20 years. So get yourself some productive farmland if you're in a financial ability to do that, of course, or land with water rights underneath it or things like that. We're going to have to view things a little differently. Being cooped up in a city, I think, is exposing how dangerous and how vulnerable people can be. So if anything good has come out of this first batch of the insanity that we've been experiencing this year, it's that people have woken up to the fact that, well, okay, hang on a second. We're very dependent on some external forces like just-in-time supply chain, shipping to get us our food. What about our medicines? Where do our medicines come from? Well, they come from China. That is, if you're still buying big pharma medicines. So it's been an awakening for a lot of people to see that this system that we think is so stable and is so concrete is really, it reverts back to what Berwick was telling me about this whole thing being a house of cards ready to come down. We've gotten a little taste of that. It is possible that everything can come down relatively quickly. You know, if we were having this conversation 12 months ago, and I was explaining to you that in this book, I foresee that we're all going to be wearing masks and we're all going to be cooped up in our house, you'd be like, get out of here. There's no possible way that's going to happen. And just look at how things have transpired in just nine months or so. So it's important for us to wake up to this fact that what we think is solid and tangible and will never change and the solidity and the comfort of knowing that we have US dollars in our pocket and US dollars are the best. All of this can change and has changed and will continue to change. So embrace it, acknowledge it, wake up to it, make some moves, start thinking a couple steps ahead. These maniacs certainly are. They're thinking many <laughs> steps ahead. So we should be doing the same thing. So so use 2020 as the wake-up call to shake you out of this, you know, sort of normalcy bias that you've had all these years that we've all had 
and to get us to start looking at things differently. What's the worst that can happen? Look, we all owe the preppers an apology, do we not? I mean, we've been goofing on them for a long time. All you crazy preppers and doomsday preppers on the History Channel. I'm sorry, preppers. I apologize to you directly for ever goofing on you. You were right. We should all be prepared. You know, 2020, the great awakening. Get yourself prepared, right? So how we recognize these signs, if we recognize them at all, and what we do to prepare ourselves accordingly is going to make the difference. So don't say you weren't warned. Don't say you didn't have time to get your act together. We're in a position now where we have to start acknowledging some very difficult truths, which is that the government does not work for us. They do not have our best interest at heart. Big Pharma is not your friend. Your nightly news is lying to you. That is their job is to program you into a version of the world that does not actually exist. So acknowledge that. Deal with it. Make moves accordingly. Position yourself to even benefit from this. Like we said, danger and opportunity. Both of those are coming. And frankly, once the proverbial tsunami comes in, it's going to clear out a lot of the debris that's been holding us back for a long, long time. So it's how we deal with this. It's how we position ourselves to either benefit from this, or if you want to just curl up in a ball and cry and suck your thumb and say, make it go away. Look, they've got plans for you. It's not going to be good. We're going to need to stand up to this. And I've increasingly been feeling like it's now or never. And I know people have been saying that for a long, long time, but boy, it really feels like, and if we're wrong, what's the worst that happened? We got prepared. We saw the world differently. We started talking to our neighbors more because we thought that that was going to be, we prepped, we bought a a bunch of extra food and batteries and things like that. You eat the food, you know what I mean? There's a lot that can come out of this. There's a lot of change coming and that change can be good and that change can be bad. But if you're aware of what's happening now and where it can go and you make moves to get yourself ready in advance, you will be very thankful that you did that. And yes, people are going to tell you that you're crazy and and blowing this out of proportions, but don't worry about that because you have a responsibility to yourself. You're here getting this information from Greg. You've been listening to Greg for years, like I have. The information's here. Wouldn't it be terrible if you had all this information and then you chose not to do anything with it? I mean, the benefit of this show is that you're getting an alternative view of reality that can be potentially very helpful for you. But if it stops there with just absorbing this information and you don't take any action because of it, you're letting yourself down and you're missing an opportunity to take advantage of this great informational resource that you have that not everybody has found yet. So do something about it. You'll be thankful that you did. (laughs) Great advice. I appreciate the kind words. And, you know, we're recording this just before the Grand Conjunction and the Winter Solstice, which is that point that so many people are pointing to. And I'm trying to get ahead of the holidays. This probably won't come out until after the first of the year, but it could be a totally different world if the emphasis people are putting on this date actually really means anything, which, you know, can be a bit of a coin flip based on prior predictions. But we see there's trouble ahead and you're going to have to be your own savior. There's just no other way to say it. But man, this has been really great talking to you. Definitely loved the book. Any 
parting words to the people, probably best to tell them a bit about your podcast since these are podcast listeners, right? Sure. Absolutely. My podcast is called Macroaggressions. It's been a trip, man. It's been really fun to do it. I do two shows a week. One is a monologue. One is an interview. I have interesting guests on. You can find it on Apple and Spotify and iHeartRadio and David Icke's video platform, Iconic, and on Rockfin and YouTube. So I've made the effort to put it as many places as I can for people to find it. I think it's just a another area for people to get connected with interesting people that we've found to come on the show. It's been a a great outlet for me. And of course, my books, The Octopus of Global Control is available on Amazon, as well as the new book, Controlled Demolition of the American Empire. And if people want to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter (laughs) at macroaggressions. Although I will tell you right now, I've already been kicked off of Twitter once this year. Mm. So I make no promises that I will be there in the long term because, you know, they don't seem to care for my thoughts on this, but a more permanent place to find me is my website, theoctopusofglobalcontrol.com. Right on. Yeah. And uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast too. You do a great job. And I also am wrestling with the censorship thing. I'm in YouTube timeout right now. And the reality is, I think we need to stop trying to have one foot in and one foot out. YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, these things were new at one time, but now we know what they are. And can we really say we're counterculture if we're participating in these platforms? I'm pretty content to just let it all burn and have people come to my website. Because if you're if you're counterculture, if you're going to embody that punk rock spirit, it's not going to happen on uh, YouTube or Facebook. And it's almost weird to try. <laughs> but... Either way, man. Yes. Love the book. Great podcast. It was fun talking to you. Uh, We'll have to do it again sometime, but I appreciate everything you do. Keep fighting the good fight and take care. And I appreciate everything that you do too, because I love your show. I've been a listener for a very long time and I love that I'm going to get aspects of things that I'd never even considered, things that I didn't know existed or people that I had never heard of. It's a great melting pot of information and ideas and what we do with that. You know, we, we get exposed to it. We process it. Some of it we take with us, some of it we don't. But I found that your show has been such a great area for me to get exposed to new and interesting people and ideas that I'd never considered. So thank you for doing what you're doing. And, and, and I hope that maybe my show Macroaggressions will get people as enthusiastic about it as they have been about THC over the years. <laughs> I'm sure it will, but Thanks again, man. It was fun. Guided by the light, ladies and gentlemen. Or really, I guess I should have started with a happy Festivus because we definitely aired some grievances today. Kind of past the season, though. Anyway, Charlie Robinson. Yes. One of my favorite people in the conspiracy culture when it comes to what I guess I'm going to start calling the new guard. People who just want justice honesty, truth, opportunity, peace, love, and happiness, you know? We're just two guys and we're having a good time (laughs) for the five people who get that reference. But it's also pretty important for me to say that we recorded this before the events at the Capitol. I wanted to make sure that I had enough shows to get THC through the holidays when it is harder to book things. And so we recorded this right before the end of the year. Then I thought, well, this is a topic that we've hit several times in a row, 
So I threw Isaac Weissop in beforehand just to break it up thematically. And I don't think we would have said anything differently. We were largely talking about Charlie's book, which is obviously already written. But maybe an example or two or a little context might have been different because the culture has shifted. So I apologize to Charlie for the delayed release. I like Charlie a lot. And so when he has a book like this coming out, I want to help him get the word out. But I also don't want THC to sound like we're beating a dead horse and making the same points about the same issues. Issues that are pretty inescapable and crucial to the lives of many people. So it's always a mental tug of war for me. But Charlie did write a good book. All the information and the lists of facts are just mind-blowing when they're stacked back-to-back like he does it. In today's show, I probably drifted into rant mode a bit too much, but I don't get it out as much as you guys might think I do, so to have a sympathetic ear is a bit cathartic. But we're all frustrated. Who isn't frustrated? So I should just shut up and do my job like everyone else, right? Ask the questions and get out of the way. You don't need to tell me. I already know. And to some people across the country, shows like this might sound a little dramatic because a lot of places are open. I realize California isn't the center of the world, but man, I'm seeing a lot of great local spots go under, and they made all the right adjustments this summer just to get shut down anyway. A big thing I like about San Diego is we can dine outside through October, November, December, January, when they let us. I went to Target the other day and just thought, huh, these big box corporate stores have done literally nothing. Shouldn't we have heard something from Target or Walmart about a new million dollar UV ventilation system being installed in all their stores? Or shouldn't the government have put some pressure on them to make some investment in air circulation? Casinos have. Sure, Target sells groceries, but they sell a lot of other stuff too that isn't essential. Why not clear out the sporting goods to make room for more food and more cleaning supplies or just things that people apparently want? And I'm not saying it's about how necessary those items are, but just the fact that they haven't done anything when there's many adjustments they could have made. The fact that people are cheering on a targeted clampdown on specifically small business is insane. McDonald's drive through still open. Yeah, but they had to close the inside. Okay, well, who's eating inside of a McDonald's? It probably helped their business to close the inside. (sighs) I just said I wasn't going to do this. But I hope everyone is staying sane right now. So much craziness out there. So many people using their fake outrage and desire to be right to go out and try to silence people. It's important to stay positive. Keep it light. Laughter really is good medicine. If you've been listening for a long time, you probably have a good sense of my personality, but I wouldn't want to be interpreted as being cold or insensitive to people who have been hit harder by this tragedy than others, either lost family or have suffered on the economic side. My empathy for that is completely unrelated to my curiosity to talk to people about alternative takes on everything, including all of this. Maybe I'm just broken inside that I don't get offended by ideas that don't come from a place of hate. 
We've explored some of the biggest taboos imaginable in the THC archive, but never from a place of hate, never in any sort of violent, rage-filled, call-to-arms way. And it sucks to see such nuance lost in this world gone mad. Threading that needle is really important. I saw the Q movement absorb so much of conspiracy culture, but I didn't expect the clapback that we're seeing now. 70,000 Twitter accounts suspended in a day. You think those were all carefully combed over? I doubt it. In the past few days, I've had people say to me, I bet you're really sorry now that you got in bed with the Q crowd. I used to love your show, but that was too much. And I think, did I get in bed with the Q crowd? I didn't think I did. I honestly struggle to understand how a person could equate what I've been doing for the past few years with that. I've honored my personal commitment to at least explore every alternative perspective with guests who are advocates for it. Otherwise, it's not really a fair exploration. But it's pretty obvious that sort of stuff has been few and far between. If anything, I've been thinking about how happy I am to have stayed on the right side of this stuff. Right as in correct side, not right politically. But people are just out for blood right now because they can. But they should really think about how their outrage is being used. Although a lot of Charlie and I's colleagues were too quick to make that a part of their identity, and anything that drenched in politics is always best to be kept at arm's length. Obviously, in this time, a lot of our colleagues are talking about finding alternative platforms, and it is crazy to see any social media alternative being labeled as far-right. When you go to these pages, all the marketing talks about is free speech, but we're hearing the early whispers of this guilty by association social crediting agenda. If you even have a parlor account, you must be a bad person. Boy, doesn't that work out great for Twitter and Facebook. And I do scratch my head a little bit over the theatrics there too. What, parlor can't keep itself online? Really? I heard some shit talking from the owner of the Pirate Bay saying, look, we've been up for 20 years and all countries hate us. And we were kids for the first half of this ride. And he's making good points. But I consider the Higher Side Chats brand to be about a community of people who are mostly just dedicated to thriving in a world where so many organizations and politicians and corporations are only pretending to support your ability to thrive when they're really undermining it. That's what these conversations are about. If you come from a place that this predator class is trying its best to help you and keep you safe, well then, as we talked about today, almost nothing makes sense. There are inconsistencies every place you look, and we can point them out all day, but those are just branches on the tree. The root is that a lot of people we love are thinking that the philanthropic predator class and political puppets that work for them are coming from a good place. And that's a tough spell to break. <sighs> but let's just stay strong-willed and be patient. Have some grace for the ones who aren't there yet. And heed the line that Gordon brought up a few shows ago. Never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. 
And much like Q and Trump mania infecting the microcosm of conspiracy culture to a degree that I was feeling pretty lonely, I tried to have the grace and patience to let it pass and take comfort in feeling like eventually I'd be on the correct side of history. I have to feel that way about this coronavirus situation too. I think people are seeing these protocols get further and further away from this thing that supposedly caused them, and folks are realizing that the logic doesn't follow. Since Charlie's book is about the 9-11 analogy, let's use that as the reference. Terrorists kamikaze themselves into a couple of buildings. Okay, and we go to war with Iraq? Wait, what? How hard do you have to twist that story for it to make any sort of sense? Even people who think 9-11 was as advertised, they still see that the wars in the Middle East didn't really compute. And I think this situation will be the same, eventually. But it's getting hard out here for a pimp. You know, I brought up the capital thing, and now the aftermath of all that is on my mind. But it's funny that I've lost a lot of paid members for walking the line on cue. For a lot of people, just the occasional guest who adopted that perspective was too much. But why do we have to be so rigid? We all have friends and family that we like, that have different political opinions from our own, and we just kind of roll our eyes at it, right? Guests on this show are sometimes going to be a little similar. We're all just people. I like to focus on what our guests are good at, but I can't control what they say. And just because I don't resonate with something doesn't mean guests aren't allowed to express themselves. And just because a guest says something doesn't mean I even endorse it. But then for the group that did get obsessed with Q, I wasn't being fair enough to their perspective. And if I'm going to be criticizing President Trump, well, then there are plenty of other podcasts for them to support, they would tell me. And that's great. And these really are comments about just what has gone on in the last four years. They don't really have anything to do with my good pal Charlie here. But I do think COVID is similar. I've had cancellations all year that would, on one hand, say, since you won't commit to this being a hoax, I'm out. And other people would say, since you want to talk about terrain theory and promote dangerous ideas in a pandemic, I'm out. Dangerous ideas like, you know, eating right and shoring up your immune system. But regardless, eventually it's not going to be about the virus itself. It will be about how the things we're doing, the protocols, the policies, have gotten so far away from the initial thing that it was supposed to be about, and then we'll just be able to focus our common criticisms on that stuff. And I think we're getting there now, actually. So we're just going to keep doing what we do and, and not be extreme, even when we have a lot of conversations about the extremes. And I just hope the majority of listeners acknowledge that difference. The show really isn't even about my thoughts anyway, as I constantly am saying. It's about hearing a range of alternative perspectives and having the sense to see where they make good points and discerning which perspectives might be a bit weak. And that's going to be different for everybody, but my man here, Charlie, he definitely gets it. If you only heard the first hour, you are missing out. The Plus Show is great. We talked about the Club of Rome, the Eight Tentacles of Control, 
the importance of spiritual and scientific control structures, consciousness, attention, and how much to give to the big plan, symbolism in our age, and several other things. You know you find value in this show or you wouldn't be here right now. If you get the balance I'm trying to strike in my explanations here in this wrap-up, join Plus, get the extended episodes, throw me a bone for my trouble, and let's all enjoy the ride. I'd love to replace those who've lost their minds with the ones who still have them. (laughs) Big thanks again for sticking with me through all this, even when I step in it sometimes, even when I have a guest that you really don't agree with. And thanks to those who just have the same overall curiosity that I do. Because the arena for that does seem to be getting smaller than it was when I started. But much love to you and yours. Keep your head up, your mind open, and your body strong, because this too shall pass. Charlie Robinson, he is the man. I've done my part. Your move, explosive engineers, promoters of fears, and curators of the controlled demolition of the American empire. Your fucking Truth has been hidden from me Didn't believe it myself Got lizard people on top of the world And I wish it was somebody else Believe it or not, the truth is out there For people who have the eyes to see My favorite show Just watch the TV and obey Take some more pills when you're blue Or we'll break you out of the spell that you're in Together we will make it through Yes, THC.
Oh, oh, oh.